Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Judy Stewart and this is Unpaused, a podcast for women wanting to reinvent their career or mastermind a new one after an extended break from work. Today I welcome Mia Feezy, founder of Siren Design, an international interior design consultancy and a woman with an incredible Cinderella story to tell. Asian by birth, but adopted and raised in the UK by an Australian mother and an English father, Mia initially studied textiles in Bristol. Encouraged by her mother to make a new start in Australia, she arrived in Sydney aged 20 with not much more than her diploma and a thousand pounds in her pocket. She began her metamorphosis into the Stella McCartney of the interiors world by working six jobs seven days a week. Suffice to say, there were many twists and turns on the road to the success that followed. After a short-lived partnership with a builder, Mia founded her own business, Siren, in 2005. Siren now employs 75 people across Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore and New York, 80% of whom are women. She has an all-female management team and is regarded as a pioneer of the flexible, family-friendly workspace. It says a lot about Mia that her chief operating officer is a childhood friend who sang alongside her in an all-girl Asian version of the Spice Girls in London back in the day. Mia has designed professional interiors for the likes of Facebook, Google and Uber, but she's just as comfortable downtown rethinking the workspaces of KPMG and PwC. Either way, she's running a problem-solving business for some of the cleverest people around, intent on using her design work to push social and environmental change thus the Stella McCartney analogy. I'll let Mia take up the story. Mia, welcome to Unpaused. Mia, you've just been recognised by the Good Design Awards as the 2020 Woman in Design. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a long way from the girl who arrived in Sydney with no contacts and a thousand pounds. What happened in between? I reflect back to when I started siren and I think I was 24 years old I had nothing to lose everyone says oh you moved here with a thousand pounds I borrowed from my mother I didn't have a network then I didn't really know anything but I did know what I couldn't do and I knew what I was bad at and I also knew that I had to play on my strengths so I suppose the key thing about being in the girl band not being able to actually sing <laughs> so I was purely in it because the internet hadn't landed yet and they couldn't find Asian girls, six foot in high heel without an accent. And if I can stand up in front of a thousand people in a nightclub in London and sing, then I could probably do anything. And I think that was the mindset that sort of set me on my way at 24 to go, yeah, I could, I can start my own design firm. <laughs> and I think the other thing that is still with me today is that I just wanted to work with good people doing great work. It was never really about building. I never thought I would own a business, never thought I'd be a boss. It was just a opportunity that happened did I want to come on board as a director with this builder and I had to call my dad and say what's the director you know it was never planned it was always just if I have to go to work every day I want to do something that I love and obviously the singing I didn't love so I came here with a mindset of if I'm going to work every day for the rest of my life I might as well do something that I love. I started out as a resource librarian as at a big commercial firm called Gaia um, about a year or so into my journey when I first moved here. And from there, I moved up to a junior designer role. And whilst I was there, I got introduced to a builder by one of the seniors and I started doing private work. And just going back one step though, how did you get the job as the librarian? I was waitressing, I was doing every kind of job and I was very lonely actually the first year I was here and I thought oh, I better start playing some sport or something. 
always very close to my mom would always be on the phone she's like darling why don't you see if there's a lacrosse club because I was always really good at lacrosse in England which is totally random so I joined the New South Wales lacrosse club and started making friends because you know when you're running six jobs you don't really make friends you're doing lots of casual work and there was a guy there called Jim McBride who was working at Gaia and he said you want to do interior design don't you I said yes yes and I was about to sign up for an interior design course in Roselle here in Sydney and I was never a big studier he said there's a job going at my work it's a foot in the door I said okay I went along and it was for me, it was a crossroads. I wanted to do set design. I started doing freelance work on sets, but I realized I couldn't support myself if I didn't have anywhere to live, you know, trying to waitress and then say, I'm not in tomorrow because I have an ad I could work on as an assistant. So I moved sort of from wanting to do set design to interior design and ended up in the library at Gaia, which was great. I'd work on the coffee cart in the morning in Martin Place from sort of six till nine and then ran upstairs to the studio and get in the library and I got to know every single supplier because they'd come in and see you and so I sort of learned really from the bottom it taught me how it all worked and then when I got enough courage up I approached the managing director who's actually now a friend of mine and said can I get a job as a junior designer he said yes near okay you can he said now who do you want to work for because the way that business was set up it was in teams I was really lucky so I was able to pick my boss in a way and I chose a lady called Lisa Brazier she's actually Lisa Smythe now I already knew she was nurturing she was a mum she worked three days a week so she just gave me opportunities she said you do this she'd run to the meetings and she I had a lot more freedom so I learned very early on around how important it is to give young people an opportunity to do stuff. And what about the lack of formal qualifications though, Mia? Did that hold you back? Um, I think it's actually helped me because I think outside the box, we've learned by failing. I think now I'm studying, I think, oh gosh, I wish I'd known that before. Or The access to information is fantastic. But I think learning from experience is just how I learn. And I did go to a fantastic school. So I had a very good education. My parents scrimped and saved to send me to a really good school in Kent. I did a year art design foundation in Bristol and then, you know, got into a textiles degree that I never really finished. I think that the attitude that my parents have had, they're both working class, was you can do anything you want. They always told me you can do anything you want. You just need to ask the question. And do you think Australia was more sympathetic to that mindset than maybe the UK? A hundred percent. Part of the reason for me moving here was my mother was moved to Australia You can live off 20 bucks on the weekend. You can go to the beach. So I was looking at sort of junior roles in London. You just can't survive off that sort of beginning. I think this is the, I call it the land of milk and honey. It's built on immigrants. And I think if you're honest and you're prepared to work hard, people will give you a fair go. That's certainly how I've found it. You know, I had no problem picking up the phone and saying, hey, can you help me? People want to help you. People want to see other people do well, I think. What about, I don't want to dwell on the negative, but what about the drawbacks? Being in an all-girl Asian version of the Spice Girls is one thing, but what was it like to be an Asian woman arriving in Australia via the UK and starting out in what was and probably still is a very masculine industry? Retrospectively, I think, God, you know, how did I deal with that? But I think just the way my mother brought me up to look at things was one door closes, another one opens. She used to sort of coach me on the phone and I'd say, oh, I think I only got this job because this guy or whatever. She'd be like, it's an opportunity. It opened the door. She used to say to me, it's really weird. I mean, it's unconscious bias. I had a double because I'm female and Asian. But she'd say, but you've got an English accent, so you're memorable. There's always something that... You go, well, that's not so great because they're looking, you know, apparently the unconscious bias for Asian women is huge. 
but I never knew about it. I was just me and, and I'd turn up and people go, oh, you're Asian. I spoke to you on the phone. I thought you'd be English. You've got to look at the other side because everything has two sides. So you went into business with this builder. Yeah. So that was your, in your mind, your way of stepping out of the big firm into something that you could own. Correct. What was the overall experience there? It was really interesting because I'd obviously had limited experience running a business. I didn't understand about insurances or I mean, I had no idea about sales or anything like that. So he pretty much dumped me in the deep end. We started out doing offices attached to warehouses. So he had an industrial building company. And he worked out that the architects would get in first and then he'd miss out on the build. So he thought if he gets this and, you know, get this young girl who presents well, put her in front of the client, he's going to get me to do the office attached to the warehouse and then he gets the build. So that was his plan. And for me, it was great. I got 60 grand a year in a car. I was like, awesome. I'd been slogging so hard. I'm like, this is, that's the only reason I said yes. I was like, great. He said, let's go 50-50. I had no idea. And I think he was very generous in that sense that he just said, well, now you're an owner. How are you going to go get work? So I was like, oh, sugar. Okay. So I literally just started calling any phone number on any billboards I saw. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know any name. I didn't know what Chesterton was. I didn't know what CBRE was. I didn't, didn't really know what a real estate agent did. I just knew that their name was on the building. He just gave me that opportunity. And then once we sort of won some work, I would I could space plan and then he would run a budget against it. So I'd look at the budget and be like, oh, I need to go find a tap. And I just worked it out. And so I started designing the journey, for example, but I had contacts from when I was at the previous business that were joiners. And I'd call them up and say, I've just kind of drawn up this kitchen. I'd run to the kitchen and look at the kitchen, see how it was put together and kind of drew it. I said, can I send it through to you? And you can tell me if it actually works. <laughs> so I'd, I just sort of fumbled my way through and it, I made all my mistakes very early on. And somehow I think, I had a mentor who, again, through sport, he started helping me. He said, now, do you want to be a designer or do you want to be a saleswoman? I said, what do you mean? I'm a designer. He said, well, you need to find someone who's going to go out and start generating leads whilst you're doing the work. So you've got to hire someone, not pay yourself and get somebody who's out because while you're doing the work, no one's out there. It's like basic business, but I had no idea. I was like, okay. So I just met these fantastic people in my life that just helped me and I just blindly took their advice. And do you think that you, did you make friends with them first? Did the mentorship come first or did the friendship come first? It was through sport. So it was, I think, again, this Australian, there's a young girl. She's giving it a go. She's on her own. No family, no network. My first two opportunities, I suppose. You never sort of know where that's going to come from, do you? No. Or why. You know, often you think it's to do with you. It's never to do with you. It's to do with where they are in their, in their life as well. It's interesting. When I actually split up with that builder, I think three years later, when I decided I didn't want to do the turnkey anymore and I'd sort of almost outgrown him in a way. I pitched for a big job, a big law firm, and we came second. And the managing partner, again, he was at a point in his career he wanted to give back. And he said, look, do you want some feedback? And I was sort of shaking my head no, but saying, yes, of course, I'd love some, but no, I'm really scared of feedback. I think I was 27 by then. And he was amazing. He pulled me in. He said, I think you're really talented and you're going to get there, but I think I can help you get there faster. And we did a deal. I said, and I burst into tears and said, oh, 
Thank you so much. Something about my dad not being here. And I think it was horrifying because he was nowhere near as old as my dad. And I'm trying to do a bit of that now myself and help people. It is. It's those key people that just, he taught me about budgeting. He talked about culture. And I said, oh, I'm splitting up with my business partner. I'm setting up Siren. And I hadn't called it Siren by then. He actually came up with the name Siren um, for me. So you started out. And what was your vision for Siren? What exactly did you want to do? It's exactly the same as it is today. If you have to work for the rest of your life, you might as well do something you love with people that you love. I think by then six staff that, that came across with me, it'd be a joy to get up every morning and go to work. You know, what's going to happen? Anything's possible. Very kind of flat structure, giving young people opportunities to do everything. You know, I think I got very much pigeonholed in the early days. I just loved seeing people blossom coming out of university. And a lot of our staff come as work experience and sort of work their way up or they come from other places and see that we do things very differently at Siren because I'm not formally trained or educated in business or <laughs> practice leadership or anything like that. So it's all a lot, lot more sort of common sense and intuition, really, the way we've built the business. I mean, it's becoming obviously a bit more formal now because we sort of have to be, but, you know, trying to keep that spirit. The clients that you have in your portfolio, it's a pretty amazing portfolio. They're some of the most creative companies in the world. What is it that they see in you that makes them choose you, do you think? It's really interesting. I hope it hasn't changed over the years. I mean, our first client that I won was Yahoo 7, which is huge. And I think at the time when I started the business, it was a very different market. Because of what we do, you often get in front of the CEO or the COO. And, and I think, you know, when I'm showing my portfolio and passion and energy, people buy from people. And I think that's really how it all started. When we expanded to Singapore, my partner, Penny Sloan, so she'd be my second in charge from the beginning, moved there and set up and she was able to get an intro into Facebook and we won it across the region. But again, she went and did the same thing. She went and met with the guy running property and she's a fantastic girl. She's obviously very talented. I trust her. And I think the market was very male dominated for one. There were no practices at the time, I don't think, that were run by youngish women, I suppose. Our portfolio, our energy, and I think it's very different now because people, big corporates back then really wouldn't buy from small firms like ours. We were very fortunate. Whereas now there's a lot of breakaway groups, people are leaving, there's not more female-owned studios. But there were very few purely interiors agencies as well at that time. It was architecture and interiors. There's different tiers as well. So also the, the GFC hit. So bad as it was, it was good for us because people just wanted talent. They just wanted us to help them resize their spaces, re look at things with fresh eyes, sort of mix things up like COVID, I suppose. Different thinking. And nowadays, I actually think it's the way that we see things and the way we talk, the language we use and the way we deliver things and hopefully the outcome is very different to the traditional way that our industry have done things. But in what particular way, what's one thing you could point to and describe that you think really differentiates the way your team does things? There's process in everything we do. There has to be. But I think part of our process is that we look at every single project as if it's the first time we're doing it. The outcome is, hopefully, if you look at our website, there's no project that looks anything like another one. So we are really designing for our clients. A lot of our competitors you'll go to for a certain style or a certain process. Maybe it's safer as well, as I think we've, one of our values is bravery. We're very brave and we're very efficient and down to earth. It was always based around being accessible. I think a lot of designers traditionally have been quite frightening you know you're selling style it's maybe kind of 
not as approachable as I, I'm hoping that if you ever meet a siren anywhere in the world, you'll meet a really down to earth, easy person that's flexible, that will help you solve your problem rather than trying to inflict our designer setting on you. It's actually listening to the client. A lot of our industry certainly listens to their clients. I'm not saying that. We will often go, hold on a minute. We said we we're going to do it this way, but we think we should be doing it this way. So it's a lot about the creative thinking and actually just not doing the process for the sake of the process. your professional standpoint if you're facing a really big design problem what's the very first step you take we do scrums a lot with the client we do our research as well so obviously we spend a lot of time making sure that we're understanding the problem before we jump into it there's a lot of strategy around it we try and set ourselves up for success as I was saying there's a lot of s's <laughs> we call them the five s's usually and we pull in diversity of thought and trying to match the right personalities and set of skills to solve the problem there's no one answer if we have four people in the room trying to solve the problem we always know that they're going to be a much better outcome than just one it is very much a collaborative approach you'll come to siren for siren because it's a collective of people rather than superstars we don't wheel out the creative director the one creative director that's going to solve that one problem for a client it's like yes that person's going to be part of the team but um, I think our outcomes are very good because we're very team-focused and team-based. And what about you personally, Mia? I mean, you've got two girls. You've got this international design practice. I read somewhere you were doing an MBA at Harvard somehow. What's your secret? Is there one? Look, it's been a process. It's over the past you know, 20 years, I've gone from doing everything and feeling like I have to do everything to now being in a place where I understand that I'm also in a position to be able to say no did a lot of things. The key thing I hear a lot of people say is I have great people around me. I have fantastic partners. I have fantastic leaders. We have incredible staff. But it's been set up that way as we all help each other. And it's that flexibility, I think, and being able to say I can or can't do something. But, you know, if I look back when I first had the children, it was really tough. And also we set up Singapore when my second was six months old and Penny who's my partner and you know done incredibly well in Singapore she was meant to be running Sydney whilst I was having my children and we were sort of sharing it and I was part-time she had to she just you know had to move with her husband and told me when I was seven months pregnant it was the scariest moment of my life I I didn't know how I was going to do it and also with a relationship with my husband you know We've been brought up in a, in a traditional way, both of us. I mean, his mum worked, she was a hairdresser, but she was the main caregiver. And when I was pregnant, he had businesses, we had debt. I did wonder how I was going to do it all. And I said to my husband, maybe I need to get a business development manager, maybe I need to hire, do. And I looked at him and I thought, hold on a minute, why am I the one saying I have to change everything in my business and take all the, what are you going to do? <laughs> and he's like, oh. Yeah, well, I suppose I could probably take Tuesdays. I went, ah, and and, it, and everyone now says, wow, your husband's incredible because he's actually now the main caregiver. He still has his own businesses, but he's completely flipped. But it's just been a journey because I, there was no one I could look to who was doing it. I know, but, you know, it's the hardest advice to get, though, and I think that I keep on returning to it at unpause because everyone's looking for that magic formula. You know, how did she do it? What made the juggle bearable? Well, you know what? How I did it was not breastfeed. 
And no one was brave enough to tell me that. The first one, I didn't get milk. So it was kind of an easy kind of like, mm, well, with the second one, I was like, well, I'm, I went back to work when Bailey was three weeks old. And I look back now and I think, how stupid am I? Even Jacinda Arden took six weeks off and she's running a country. Like, what was I thinking? You know, and I didn't have an EA or a PA or anything because I thought I've got to pay for a nanny. So, you know, and again, once I got an EA years later, I went, why didn't I get an EA? And you have this kind of, because it is sort of still sort of startup mentality in a way that every penny counts. And I thought I could do it all. And so I ended up having... I had a 10-day migraine at one point, I think when the kids were, I think they were 16 months apart, so it was, it was crazy. Um, they were both in nappies. I was, you know, cooking the food and freezing it. And so you know, nanny would come at, at 8.30, the kids would be ready. I was out the door and then, and I talked really fast at work. It wasn't good for culture because I felt so guilty that I was paying somebody else to look after my children whilst I was at work. And I just read that Wendy Harmer said, Margaret, just give him a frozen meal every now and again. Or Ida Butt-Rose wrote, you can't feel guilty. And I just let go of the guilt. But I, I'm sure there was about a year where I just hammered myself that I had to do everything, be everywhere, you know, be the best mother, be the best wife. And my body just went, no, not doing, doing it. And I collapsed for, you know, 10 days. I couldn't get out of bed. And do you see younger women working for you going through the same thing ever? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's still not where it needs to be. We have a lot of mums that have changed their arrangements as well, you know, so they're three days and they're still, you know, trying to work. I think the whole COVID thing is really interesting. I think now it's okay to have children. You know, you can see them running behind on the Zoom. Whereas before it was still, I mean, even the industrial relation um, laws to try and get women in into the workforce we're not allowed to ask if you want to have kids if you're married where you live how old you are and all these things which it's we need to know that now and I think you know how do you create this this whole working from home thing maybe the corner office is people our age or I mean in their 30s to know that they can still have a career and have children and maybe your corner office is that you can work from anywhere and you can still progress but how do we get corporates to start having those conversations? Because it's actually illegal to ask when you're interviewing someone. So I think it's the real problem with our, the way we've set ourselves up now because we've moved on, but the, the rules are still behind. And I think, you know, people say, the future of the workplace. I'm like, well, you can't even have an honest conversation and tell me what your workforce will look like in the next five years because you can't ask. I know, but then I hear it from the other side, of course, where women are immediately marked down as soon as they say that they're, engaged or they haven't had children and they've been engaged for married for four years and of course they're thinking of having a family so it's just that it's the impossible question yeah it is but it's the stats though right so I obviously have a lot and the mums are the best workers the mums get in they get out there's you know just the they're they're, you just get good at, at that point in your career you know so much you know they're the most valuable they can do everything they've got the right amount of experience so there has to be more talk, I think, around the value that the mums or the, you know, the people about to have children bring to your business and, and, the, and the diversity of thought that you get and the prioritisation that you get with the mums. They just get it done. You've said that interior design is worse than fashion. Can we talk about this new driver of your business, the desire to put sustainability on the agenda? 
Yeah. It's obviously been around for a long time. You know, we've had a lot of initiatives and I don't want to call it noise, but in our industry, everyone's aware, but nothing's really changing. Just describe the problem. So the problem is offices, and it's changing now because of COVID. I mean, I will go past at night these big towers and there are big skips of chairs that are just being thrown out. And the way that our industry is set up is every new fit out creates more money for builders, project managers, designers. So it's all about wanting new because that's what keeps the wheels turning. And I just think there's a better way of doing things. Often if you're moving out, if a tenant is moving out of their office building, the landlord or them have to do a make good. So the whole fit out goes in in, in the bin. They put in a whole new carpet, all new ceiling tiles, they repaint and everything, and then try and lease it out to a tenant. Then the tenant comes in and goes, oh, I'm going to do exposed ceilings. I'm going to do concrete floor in these areas. So they rip out that brand new carpet, that brand new ceiling, and that goes in the bin. And then they put their fit out in. And then they've only got a five-year lease. So then they're going to move out and they're like, oh, so what happens? So it's just this constant churn of stuff that's nothing's wrong with it. And so we're the first to say we've been appalling as well. We haven't done anything to start trying to make a difference up until last few years because I was just starting a business and we just wanted, you know, to design offices for Google and Facebook. It came across, we'd try and use, you know, E-Zero board or we'll try and use, you know, low VOC paints and we try and do all the right things. But the reality is the big picture is how do we create vehicles for people to easily find this stuff and reuse it or be smarter about how we do stuff, you know. So one of our clients came to us and said, we want a proposal for you to make good these 10 floors. So we went and had a look. And because we'd changed our mission, into trying to use our creativity to help businesses care for the planet because I understand we're only a tiny, 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 tiny piece in the jigsaw puzzle. Because of that, my team went, oh, hold on a minute. We can do that, but can we also talk to you about another solution? So why don't we just make good one floor so that you can show potential tenants what a new floor looks like, but leave the existing fit out in place on the other nine floors. And we could maybe do a bit of a design work around reusing that and repainting it and maybe adding a couple of mini rooms to the floors to repurpose them. So we're kind of outdoing ourselves of work in a way, but I also think it doesn't really matter because the big picture, our purpose is to enable people to thrive at Siren. So if there's no planet... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no one's going to be thriving. So it is about the emissions. It's such a huge, huge thing. What do you focus on first? You know, there's a lot of noise. Like, do you eat? Am I supposed to be eating no meat? Am I, how do you? But actually, I've sort of just whistled it down for the staff and, and gone, okay, let's, let's try and focus on the emissions piece because obviously that's the first bit, I, from what I understand, is going to get us first. So it's a big thing. And, and when we went through it, I was a bit worried because everyone's going to laugh at us. We're interior designers saying we want to do this thing. So what have we got to offer? And it is our creative thinking. It is our creativity. And that just one little example of saying, I get people still have to make money. People still have to survive. If there are opportunities like that where we can think about things in a different way, why don't we? Why don't we be the first ones to put our hands up and be brave? Mia, are you finding that that's resonating? Are you finding people are sitting up and listening? Totally. I think everyone wants to do the right thing. They just don't know how. And because I think I was able to stand up and say, we don't know either, 
But I do know what we have to offer. And it goes back to that first conversation we had when we started today around, I know what we're good at. And a lot of it is problem solving. Have it at front of mind, you know, because I think back in the day, people pushing to get the new $5,000 meeting table. Whereas, you know, it goes down to that ground level of if you can get everyone at Siren thinking, actually, you know what, there's something over there we can reuse and put new legs on it. That's the starting point. And then the leaders at the top who are talking to the CEOs and the corporates and saying, well, are you sure that's the right strategy? You know, and not be going, oh, actually, if they take that extra space, it's going to be great for our bottom line, you know, our profit. Let's let's just put the, the economics aside and start thinking about social and environmental first. And I think the money will follow. Do you think that that sort of creativity can be taught? Is it something that is just really for the artistically inclined? Or is this something that, say, for instance, women trying to repurpose their working lives, is this something that they can learn? It's a really good question, Judith. Absolutely. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. The more And the more ideas you get. It's been incredible in COVID, actually, how as a team we've had time to really think about things and come up with much more creative solutions to these social problems really global problems and so yeah for for people it is just looking at things from a different perspective and going what if if you're sitting at home on your own in front of the drawing board and thinking well I've lost my job or I hate my job is there a, a simple framework that you could suggest that is a starting point yeah so two things have come into my mind I love this question so one going back to that whole team thing get a buddy Get someone you have a good rapport with that you don't mind them asking you difficult questions. No one is an island. Personally, my management team and partners, we constantly kind of, we go, we go there sometimes, you know, so they'll ask me some tough questions I don't like, but we get much better results. So that's one thing I absolutely recommend is having partner, your best friend, or just someone that you know you can have a difficult conversation with and get them and give them permission to ask you some difficult questions. And then the other thing is we've been spending a lot of time with the Ikigai, you know, the Japanese, it's a tool that the Japanese use around trying to find your purpose. And it's got the questions in it and they're big questions, but it's around what the world needs from you, what you can be paid for and what you love doing. So it's like passion, profession, and I can't remember the other one. And they're really big questions. It's definitely worth having, there are these things around, but Ikigai is a great one that you could sit there and again, do it with a friend or a couple of friends and go, oh, I don't know, what would the world pay for? I mean, to try and get yourself out of yourself almost and step away. The big questions, because you do kind of go, oh, well, I really like these things. Well, forget the small things, think the big things. Like what, and this is the great time. This is what I think the, the gift of COVID could be for a lot of people to actually spend some time trying to find what's going to make them happy. Just on that point, Mia, I know you did this really clever survey while COVID was on that talked about what COVID actually gave people. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so really simple. And I think there was, again, a lot of noise around and complicated stuff happening. I was like, actually, I don't want to forget the things that I've learned. And so I often find three things that are much easier to remember. And we just ask people, what three things have you lost? And what three things have you gained? And it was so interesting, the results, because I would have thought everyone would have said money, but it, it didn't even come up, really. I mean, it did, but it, did, it really didn't, well, didn't score high at all. A lot of it was family and, you know, people had lost time, you know, which was sad. Freedom, obviously, was one. But a lot of people said they'd gained time 
and then also time with their family. And I think when we move forward out of it, or as we move forward out of this, I really think it's important that we try and remember the things that we've gained from this time because they're gifts as well. A little bit like the question you asked me around how, how hard was it being Asian and female? It's like, what, what are the gifts of that, of the hard stuff? What about your body of work? I've yet to find someone who really wants to talk about this, but how do you best document who Mia Feezy is and what she stands for? What form does that take? So personally or for Siren? Well, both really. I think it's changed and morphed as I've matured. (laughs) So I think in the beginning, all I had was me in a way, you know, and it was this heart and sleeve, just everything. If I met anybody, you'd instantly hopefully know what I stood for and what I'm about. Then, you know, as we grew and we got a website, I was able to kind of express the values of the business, which are my personal values as well, and just how we did stuff, how we presented our staff and our work. And then as I've matured, it's such a funny word to use for yourself, I'm still very immature, hopefully. I'm writing these articles and I'm able to have a platform now, which I take quite seriously. Particularly, again, I keep going back to COVID, but I, I've learned that words haven't always been, I'm not natural at, I'm much better with, you know, I call it colours, but that's always a bit more than that, but I'm, I'm a visual person. And in COVID, particularly when we were working from home in the beginning, I had to choose my words very wisely. And I only learned that by really failing. You know, people, the staff would listen to every single word I was saying and how I was saying it. It was never more important to make sure you use the right words in that tough time. Could I suggest that you have a look at the Siren Designs website? and see just who Mia has worked with. It will make you marvel still more about this incredible woman who, starting with almost nothing, made it through hard work and a core belief that if she was going to work every day for the rest of her life, she would do it with people she admired, doing something she loved. I want to focus on four things, even though there's a lot more in the interview that warrants a second hearing. Mia said something telling. She would work in the coffee cart in the morning in Martin Place from six till nine, and then run upstairs to the design practice where she managed the building material and architectural product samples and go to work. That role brought her not only into close proximity to all the decision makers and designers in the company, she got to know every supplier as well, teaching her how the whole system worked. It was in that role that she built a relationship with the managing director of the firm, who later became a pivotal mentor to her. But she also sold him coffee before she started. She had and used her unlimited access and the ability to impress in that library and things began to click. Mia made an important point about being memorable. Yes, she was an unknown female Asian woman and yes, there was probably unconscious bias that was likely to work against her. But she spoke with an English accent so there was total surprise when she turned up to meet people in person. Not only did she turn a negative into a positive, But as she said, it's great to have something about you that's memorable. It gives you something to work with. Mia also said something that really stayed with me. People do business with people. It's clear from the interview that an important part of Mia's story is that people gave her valuable feedback. They appreciated her presentations and told her so. They valued and fed off her energy and on some occasions built the sort of bond that became so strong it gave her access to trusted sources of advice expertise and sometimes enduring friendship. 
but it started with what she brought off herself to her work and how people responded to that. Mia has taken the time to reflect on the gifts of COVID. Kids are suddenly real, families are suddenly visible, and people have lives that sometimes have to take over. This is a huge shift, and I think she's clever to acknowledge it. I could do a whole episode on Siren's emerging approach to sustainability and prioritising social and environmental considerations, confident in the knowledge that eventually the money will flow. If I go back to Mia's website, Mia has harnessed the power of the who's who of clients she has attracted and mesmerised, and built the sort of influence that will, if she follows through, begin to change the client mindset of the disposable fit-out forever. If anyone can do this, she can. It's been a great pleasure to interview her. I hope you got as much out of this interview as I have. There's more information about Mia, Siren, and some of her articles in the show notes for this episode. Thanks to Leonie Marsh and the sound team for all their help, and Claudia Cameron for her research. Until next time on Unpaused, farewell. Farewell.